All right. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Hey, if you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, don't stress. Uh, We'll have the passage on the screen as we read through it here in just a moment. But as always, I I would love for you to uh, have your Bible open in some form so that you can look at it with us. And uh, I think it will make your study experience uh, much more valuable. Uh, So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26 is where we're going to be today. Have you ever wondered, what should I as a Christian do with all of these Old Testament rules? There's so many rules, and some that make a lot of sense, and some that are a bit strange. And we often wonder, what are we supposed to do with all of this stuff in the Old Testament? If you were to ask around enough, you will eventually find someone who will give you this answer. They would say... Well, all of God's word is holy and infallible, and so we need to continue to obey the rules of the Old Testament. And you would reply, that sounds kind of right, but Leviticus 19 says we're not supposed to wear clothes that are made out of a mix of linen and wool. Or Exodus 22 says you can kill a burglar at night, but not during the day. And then Deuteronomy 14 says, don't eat pork. So, I mean, what are we supposed to do with all of that? To which the person might respond, well, those laws were just for ancient Israel. Really, we're just supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. If we do that, then we're going to be okay. To which you might respond, ah, that sounds kind of right, but I don't know. I mean, the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And Sabbath is not Sunday. Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. So we're not really keeping the Sabbath, nor are we keeping it holy. And the person might respond, uh, well, you know, because of Jesus, we have a new Sabbath. It's, it's been moved to Sunday. And really, if you just keep nine and a half of the commandments, you're doing what you're supposed to do with the Old Testament. So we have these struggles. We have these disagreements about the place, the role of the Old Testament in the life of the Christian. Uh, and this is an issue that Paul takes up with the churches in Galatia. Uh, in chapter 3 of Galatians, this is part of his answer in which he explains that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks in some form, do you remember the setting of this letter? What's happening? What's the drama that prompts Paul to sit down and write this letter to these churches? You'll remember that Galatia is not a town, it's a region. And in this region, Paul has planted these Christian churches. He preached the gospel, they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, their lives were changed. And after Paul left, these opponents of the gospel, we call them Judaizers, they came into these churches and taught a false doctrine. They taught that faith in Christ was not enough for your salvation, that you also had to obey the Mosaic law. You have to keep the rules of the Old Testament and believe in Jesus in order to truly be a child of Abraham or a child of God. And so as Paul methodically dismantles this Judaizer teaching, he's helping his audience understand better our relationship with the Old Testament law. So when a person belongs to Jesus... What should they do with the Old Testament law? My goal today is to share the answer to that question with you. And I think it's an answer that's going to leave you in awe of our promise-keeping God. So I want you to follow along with me in your Bible as I read Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And here's what Paul writes. 
Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned under the coming, or until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The heart of the issue is justification. How do I have a right standing before God? Is it as the Judaizers say, it is a little bit of faith and a whole lot of Mosaic law keeping? Or is it as the gospel says... Faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ that saves. Mixed up in all of this is our relationship with the Old Testament law. And so we're going to address this passage by dividing it into two sections. And I think a high level view of these two sections is going to be most beneficial for us this morning. Rather than digging deep and getting into every little phrase and and every little word. We could certainly do that. um, But I think we're best served to take a high level view of this passage today. So in order to understand the role of the Old Testament in our lives, Paul starts by describing the position of the law. Two sections in this, the position of the law, the purpose of the law. Let's start first by looking at the position of the law. Now, for us to understand the position of the law, when I say law, what I mean is the Mosaic law, the Torah, Old Testament, however we want to summarize it. It's those commands that God gave Israel for living with him. In order to make sense of that, we've got a few puzzle pieces that we need to put in place. So let me show you the pieces of our puzzle. Uh, And uh, there are four of them in this discussion. Uh, The first piece would be, uh, the, the, the representative for that first piece would be Abraham. And to Abraham, God gave a promise. We've talked about this, I think last week, week before Genesis chapter 15. God called Moses. Moses believed God and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. And God gave Moses a promise. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. And when Paul sees that promise, he tells us what God intends there is that through Abraham, faith is going to come to all people. People will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the one to come. So that's the promise. Puzzle piece number one, God's promise to Abraham. 
Puzzle piece number two is the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses. It's what the Judaizers are bringing to the table and telling these new Christians you have to obey and believe. Puzzle piece number three is Jesus. He always is in the puzzle someplace. He's got to fit somewhere. And then the fourth puzzle piece is you. Because this is ultimately all about your salvation. How is it that you are justified by faith in Christ? The Judaizers have one way of putting this puzzle together. According to the Judaizers, the Mosaic Law is top priority. That's why it's biggest in my graphic. This is what defines everything else. It's what informs everything else. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. Nowhere in the book of Galatians does Paul say that these Judaizers tell people to not believe in Jesus. So it seems that they encourage that. But faith in Jesus alone is not enough. You have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised, keep the holidays, keep the diet, do all the things that we would do under the Mosaic law. If you do that and you believe in Jesus, well, then you can be included in Abraham's promise. This is the Judaizer puzzle. This is their math. This is how you might could be justified. Keep the law, believe in Jesus, and then Abraham's promise comes to you. Keep this in mind, but I want you to turn your eyes back to the text. At verse 15 and verse 17, Paul counters this. Verse 15, he says, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So as in the first century, so in the 21st century, if you have a will that dictates what's to happen with your estate after you die, that thing has been put in place. It cannot be changed after you're gone. So my children, I've already divvied up who gets all of my 90s Christian cassette tapes. They can't change that. They're going to get those things and they will cherish them and have no way to listen to them. But they'll have them either way. Can't change this will that's been put into place. Look at verse 17. He says, my point is this, the law, which came 430 years later than the promise to Abraham does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Here's the Judaizers' mistake. They say, yes, God gave a promise to Abraham. But then the law of Moses came and that informs the way we think about the promise. It is indeed our access to the promise. And Paul says, "Ah, that's, that's faulty thinking. That's not correct at all. You cannot change the promise that God has already given to his people. God's promise to Abraham is like cheese and people. They get better with age. And so Paul puts these puzzle pieces into a different order. Let's look at how the gospel orders these different pieces. It starts with Abraham's promise. And you are included in that promise. When God said to Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. He had you in mind. So you're included in the promise to Abraham. That promise to Abraham ultimately points to Jesus Christ. He is the seed, the one to come who will fulfill the promise, who will make it possible for us. The law of Moses came 430 years later. And the law's role was never to give us access to the promise, but rather to help us understand our need for the promise. 
So the law of Moses is secondary to the promise of God to Abraham, a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what is the position of the law? Well, the Mosaic law does not replace God's promise to Abraham. And the Mosaic law does not grant us access to God's promise. God's promise stands above the Mosaic law and is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Paul's focus in this argument has been, is on the Mosaic law. But what if we were to put some other type of law in that place? Fast forward to 2020, we can put in that box the cultural law that seems to control our land. Our cultural law has its own set of morals, its own way of living, its own language. Uh, It has its own judgment. It lacks grace. It lacks second chances. It lacks mercy. And so what are we to do then with a different type of law? Because you would say to me, Cody, I don't struggle with, you know, keeping Mosaic law. I'm not eating kosher. I'm not, I don't feel like any of that does me any good. Fair enough. But we live in a land that has its own law, its own way of living and thinking. To you, class of 2020, five minutes on your college campus or your next pursuit and you are neck deep in a secularized world that is finding Jesus increasingly hateful. And what will you do? What will you do when cultural law demands everything from you and the alternative is to be canceled or be called a bigot or to be called hate-filled? What will you do? Here's what I hope you'll do. You will humbly take up your cross and follow Christ. You will humbly die to yourself and hold to Jesus Christ, the promise-keeping Messiah. The one who's rescued you from your sin. The one who laid down his life for you. Look, you're going to be told that if you don't abandon Jesus and go the way of the world, then you're going to be on the wrong side of history. It's better to be on the wrong side of history than the wrong side of eternity. God has put you in that school, in that place, among those people to influence them with the gospel. Not that you would abandon your faith, but that you would influence the lives of the people around you. You might be the only Christian they've ever met. You might be the only Christian they're around for a long time. They need to see in you Jesus Christ. Not the law of culture, but the gospel of grace through him. So Paul's told us about the position of the law. It's submissive or secondary to God's promise to Abraham. Next, he gives us the purpose. What's the point of it then? If it's secondary, why do we have it in the first place? That's the question we're all thinking. The question that Paul asked in verse 19, why was the law given? And he answers his own question. Thanks for doing that, Paul. He says it was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Here's our tricky phrase. The law was added or it was given for the sake of transgressions, for the sake of sin. So does that mean that the law was given in order to diminish our sin against God? 
Well, it's true that God gave the law so that sinful people would know how to live with a holy God. But the law has never been capable, never, never, never been capable of increasing our righteousness. That's why it came with a sacrificial system to begin with. God knew giving this law is a standard that they will never attain to. God's people will never achieve this sinless perfection. Therefore, they need a sacrificial system to atone for their sin. Righteousness didn't come through keeping the law because they broke the law. We broke the law more than we've kept it. And if you think about the history of God's people, what happens to Israel under the law? What happens to Judah under the law? Did it increase their righteousness? If you know your Old Testament history, not a bit. Each of those nations is wiped out under God's judgment against their sin because living under the law did not increase their righteousness. Rather, it exposed their sinfulness. And that's what Paul means by this phrase. When he says the law was added for the sake of transgressions, he's saying we were given the law by God in order to expose our sinfulness and our need for God to fulfill his promise to those that he will save. Keeping the law is not a way to be right with God. Having the law accentuates the fact that we are not right with God. We will not be right with God in our own power. The law does not, has not ever contributed to anyone's righteousness. Now the Judaizers would say, hey, keep the law and become righteous. And Paul counters and he says, you fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of the law. You cannot keep the law. Therefore, you cannot be righteous. The law exposes sinfulness. It does not create righteousness. And so Paul asks another question in verse 21. Is the law contrary to God's promise? Is it an adversary? Do we have this octagon with Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees in one corner and Moses from a Hebrew mother in an Egyptian palace in another corner and now they're just going to go at it and see, pick a side. Who do you want, Moses or Abraham? And we might expect Paul to say, well, yeah, of course, that's what the situation is. But that's not what he says, is it? Verse 21, he says, absolutely not. The promise of God and the law of God are not at war with each other. They complement each other. The law reveals our need for life, but it cannot give it. We make sense of the law of God by looking first through the promise of God. God's promise is you will be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The law tells us you need that kind of salvation. Because you can't keep this. You can't do this. Righteousness is not coming by this law. You need a God who keeps his promise to save you by faith and by faith alone. So the promise of God, the law of God are not at war with each other. They make sense of one another. The promise of God meets the need that the law of God exposes in us. Paul goes on to say that we're under sin's power. There's no attempt uh, on our part that can change that imprisonment. In verse 24, he says the law is a temporary guardian. It was meant to hold us temporarily until Christ came so that we could be justified by faith. And now that Christ has come, what do we do with the Mosaic law? 
What do we do with all of these rules and regulations and the Ten Commandments or the nine and a half commandments that we keep? What do we do with all of those? Look at verse 25. He says, since the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The role of the guardian is over. The law did what the law was supposed to do, showed us our need for the promise, exposed our sinfulness, and now we're done with it. We don't need that guardian anymore. So what's the purpose of the law? If I were to give it to you in one fairly simple sentence, it would be just this. The law was a temporary guardian that exposed our sinfulness until Christ came and justified us by faith. The law of Moses was a temporary guardian that exposed our sinfulness until Christ came and justified us by faith. So are Christians required to obey the Old Testament law? The answer is no. The law was a temporary guardian. It exposes sinfulness and it brings glory to God for the promise that he would keep to save us by faith. Here's here's your counter. So, So we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? Does that mean I get to murder now? What a silly question that is. No, that's not what we're saying here. We're not saying it's believe Jesus and live in anarchy. The New Testament tells us how those who are saved by grace are to live their lives and the good works that God planned for them ahead of time. Let me just give you one example. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus tells his crowd this. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never make it to heaven. So that's startling because scribes and Pharisees are super serious about the law of God. How can I have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes? By keeping more of the law than they did? Is that going to give me more righteousness? No. By by keeping a new law. Does Jesus punt the old law and give us a new law that leads us to righteousness? Absolutely not. Where do we find a righteousness that exceeds The work of men and their failure under the law. We find it through faith in Christ alone. God's promise to Abraham gives us that righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And once we possess that righteousness of Christ by faith, well then the ethics of the kingdom of God are applied to our lives. Blood-bought children of the promise live as light and salt in the world. And we exercise kingdom ethics. And those ethics sound like this. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's how blood-bought people live. Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 12, once upon a time, an expert in the Mosaic law asked Jesus, What's the most important law of all? Jesus said, The most important commandment is this love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Those are the kingdom ethics we abide by. The death of Christ on the cross, his sacrifice for sinners, informs the way we live in our day-to-day lives. So it's not believe Jesus and engage in anarchy. It's believe Jesus, pick up your cross, and follow him every day of your life. 
So if I were to ask you about a Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law, do you think you might be able to give a better answer, have a better understanding? What's the position of the law? Well, it's submissive to or it's secondary to God's promise to Abraham. And what's the purpose of the law? It was a temporary guardian put in place to expose our sinfulness until Christ came to justify us by faith. Now, if I had taken a poll at the doors on your way in, through your masks, uh, I ask you, hey, tell me what are some of your felt needs? You would have mumbled to me, uh, my job is a mess. Uh, my finances are in trouble. My health is not great. My family's not great. We've just got a lot of struggles. And I need, I need to know how to fix that stuff. Those would be your felt needs. No one would have said this morning, my number one felt need is understanding the place of the Old Testament in relationship to the promise of God to Abraham. No one would have said that. So what does this mean for us? When jobs are messed up, marriage is tough, Parenting is a challenge. Health is working against you. Fear and anxiety are on the increase. Well, it sounds to me like you need a God who keeps his promises. Isn't that what we've seen today? That even though we are deep and nasty sinners, God kept his promise to Abraham and fulfilled that promise by sending his son to die in our place for our sin. He takes your sin, and when you trust in Him, He gives you His righteousness and His eternal life. So if your life is a wreck today, let's start by getting your soul right. Let's not just use God as some sort of cosmic fixer. He's so much more wonderful than that. He calls you today to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, to put everything on Jesus and He will forgive you and He will save you today. He will keep His promise to you. How wonderful to know that God made a promise to Abraham that was for you. And how amazing that He fulfilled that promise in Jesus Christ. Fulfilling that promise came at a great price. It came at great sacrifice. It wasn't an easy promise to keep. And we know that God will keep all of his promises to us because he has kept the greatest one, the one to save us through faith in his son. Uh, Booker T. Washington, in his book, Up From Slavery, he tells of meeting an ex-slave from Virginia who exemplified what it means to keep a promise at great sacrifice of yourself. Uh, this man had entered into a contract with his master. Uh, the master told the slave, uh, you can buy your freedom from me, here's the cost. And over the course of their years together, the master released the slave from his plantation to seek higher paying work elsewhere. And the agreement was that the slave would return every year back to the plantation to pay what he could towards that debt. So the slave moved to Ohio where wages were a bit higher and there he worked. And it was over the course of those years that the nation fell into the Civil War. And President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which ended slavery and brought freedom to all slaves, including this man. But he still owed his master $300. Now think about it for a minute. This former slave was free. He didn't have to pay his master. The final $300, uh, he didn't have to pay him any of that. He could have just gone on with his life. He was already freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, but he'd made a promise. 
And he was a man of his word. And so he walked from Ohio back to Virginia and he presented his former master with the full amount he had promised him down to the last dollar. And that's what God is like. Like that slave, former slave, that man who kept the promise at great sacrifice to himself. God kept a promise he didn't have to keep, made a promise he didn't have to make, and he paid dearly for that promise at the expense of his own son. So friend, do not let your soul be chained one more minute to that old law, but find your freedom in our promise-keeping God. Would you pray with me, please? So Lord God, we thank you for your promise to us, a promise that never fails, a promise that has fueled your people and held us forever. That through faith in Christ, salvation is ours, new life is ours. God, we praise you for that. Expose in us the ways that we lean on law for our righteousness. Although we understand now, it can't do that. It could never do that. Thank you that you've always been the God defined by promise. Whose plan has always been for the faith of your children. The Lord set our eyes there now. From every voice, every call of the world, every call of religion and irreligion to trust in law. God, give us courage to put it all on Jesus Christ. To bring new life today and new strength as we walk with you, the God who keeps promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray.